Hi, and welcome to Tuesday Talkies, where we discuss what's going on in the music business world. I'm Peter Schwing, and joining me today are my fellow co-hosts, Sam Tall, Aisha Adamo, Stephanie Carlin, and The Duke. If there's something you'd like to chime in about, let us hear your thoughts in the comments below. Today, we're going to discuss what Warner's IPO means, more on the Spotify countersuit, escaping the music clone wars, revisiting the past, and issues with virtual relationships and teams. So let's get to it. Today, Warner Music Group filed with the SEC to launch an IPO of 70 million shares in the range of $23 to $26, which could potentially raise up to $1.8 billion. Len Blavatnik's Access Industries and others are selling these as secondary shares, meaning proceeds won't go directly to the company. It will be a controlled company, meaning Blavatnik will retain control of the company and Access will receive whatever proceeds the IPO brings in. First, a little background. Blavatnik bought Warner Music in 2011 for $1.3 billion. Before that, it was a publicly listed company from 2005. Time Warner sold Warner Music in 2003 for about $2.5 billion to an investor group led by the Seagram heir, Edgar Bronfman Jr., and private equity firm Thomas H. Lee, which turned out to be a convoluted mess that many blame Bronfman for. Right now, depending on how you look at valuation, it could bring Warner a valuation between 12.5 and 19 billion. So you have a wide range there. Do people really want to invest in the music business right now? With Blavatnik controlling the funds, does this look like a setup for an acquisition run? With this take on this, let's turn to Sam Tall and discuss this a little deeper. Sam, how are you? I'm well, Peter. How are you? Good, good. How's everything out in LA? You know, it's typically great. It's 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 brilliant. It's sunny. It's people are naturally distanced by virtue of being in cars. So no worries over here. <laughs> Fantastic. Less traffic. Yeah, certainly less traffic. That's that's definitely the the, the upshot of it. Um, so Sam, I I know you yeah. saw the news. Uh, yep. What what's your thoughts on this? What a way to wake up this morning. Yeah, uh, you know, being in Los Angeles, we're three hours behind the curve a little bit. So the 9 a.m. news is 6 a.m. and I don't see it for a little bit. But uh, I, I think it was, it's, it's, you know, this is one of those news stories, one of those days in the music business that every platform is going to cover. Every, you know, music business worldwide, Music Week, Billboard, Music Ally, like they're all going to have their teardown of the, the filing and, uh, you know, watching the stock price closely, similar to Spotify's IPO a couple of years ago and, and all the sort of, um, you know, uh, talk about a potential UMG pseudo or, or partial acquisition, for example. Um, but I think, you know, the, what you mentioned about this kind of setting up a run of acquisitions and kind of raising capital for that purpose, I'll be really interested to see what that actually looks like. Um, we know that BMG beat that drum for a while. Downtown grew very quickly as a result of focusing on catalog and company acquisition versus direct signings, Reservoir, Concord, similar story. So the sort of like independent pack, those leaders of the independent publisher space are really aggressive about it. And you know, it stands to reason that now that that's a tried and true sort of strategy at that level that it's time for the majors to do the same thing which i feel like they might have been a little bit more you know quiet and hush about in recent years 
And the interesting thing, uh, you know, to go back, if you look at this, I'm going with some of the valuation, and they were looking at the universal situation years ago, and you know, and how that was unfolding with Tencent owning a 10% stake in the company, so it was a little more challenging. And so some of the valuation was is based on that, and that's where they were coming in at the high end of the like 19, you know, 19 and a quarter billion. Mm -hmm. But the thing here that also, you know, that I look at is, you know, in the past when Warner was public and then they had that spree, now then it unfolded and then the industry changed. So in 2005, at that time, you know, we were bottoming out. We were going, we was the race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's when investors were really shying away. So is this that moment where you see all this catalog acquisition going on? Is this a prime time for in, for people to be invested? Well, regardless of the industry, right? Recessions breed consolidation. Um, we've seen that in past decades, past eras. And I think this is potentially another scenario where that can occur. And, you know, with the sort of the... Uh, unbundling of EMI, for example, and, you know, all this stuff around Citigroup and then the, the way that assets changed hands, the way that Warner picked up pieces and parts and then had to, you know, shed some, some bits. I think it's, it's certainly, uh, it'll be fun to watch. It'll be interesting. I think the, the difference now is that rather than being in the middle of a downturn in terms of the recording business, you know, putting aside the macro economy for a second, Rather than the industry bottoming out, we're on a serious hike. Every year, we're posting bigger and bigger numbers than the year before, and we're on a really, really positive trajectory, which makes this like very compelling territory, which is, you know, of course, evidenced by uh, Mercury Curiatus and Hypnosis songs and the fundraising that he's done. So I, I think that might be, hopefully, this, this presents an opportunity for the industry to stabilize in a way that, in, you know, kind of ensures itself and buffers against other sort of platform and format changes that could disrupt the revenue pipeline. But if anything, for the immediate, it certainly seems like a good cash run for, for access. Right. And, you know, looking at, uh, look, looking here, Warner Music earned $258 million in uh, fiscal year uh, 2019 on a revenue of $4.48 billion and stating that recorded music generated $3.84 billion mm. or 86% of total revenues. I mean, publishing, here's the thing. Publishing is limited by statute, right? There's a lot of, there's the consent decrees on the performance side. There's the mechanical royalty statutes that kind of cap what can be earned realistically. Um, but there's no floor to that. So there's always negotiations away. There's, it's, you know, publishing is so fraught with legal language, whereas the recording business is so market-based that of course it's going to, be distributed like that and it's you know similar to how the platforms are paying out their royalties is how the companies that you know the labels make their money and then uh, they obviously have certain cost structures in place and if you look at you know spotify's cost structure this is what makes it so different between a company like spotify which itself is maybe in the original content game now with podcasts but hasn't quite been there with music their cost structures are like 85 percent so their margins like 10 or 15 mm -hmm. at best on a good day Right. And they're still running a loss. And that's largely because a lot of their money has to go out for royalties. Whereas for Warner and for other major labels, unless the case with independence, a lot of their money doesn't have to go out for royalties. It has to go out for salaries, for infrastructure, for 
debt, you know, payments, servicing all of that, you know, lines of credit and things like that. But I, if I remember correctly, reading the reports this morning, only something to the extent of like 40% of, of their cost basis or 40% of their revenue is allocated towards like artist and repertoire and other sort of catalog expenses. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. The operating Which seemed low to me, to be honest, exactly, but yeah. that's, you know, <laughs> that's the business. <laughs> Yeah, they were saying that, uh, and but that was, you know, that's how they were doing that valuation is also, you know, stating that, you know, using the multiples of the operating expenses and everything, that's how they're getting this different valuation. So again, it's that numbers game of the fluctuation between is it going to be 12 or 19 billion? Um, so it's going to it's be interesting. It's part of a whole stack yeah. with, you know, Warner and Deezer and a little bit of Songkick in there. And there's just like, I think what this potentially sets up if a majority of the proceeds of the uh, equity sale attributes directly to Access Industries is a pretty interesting, you know, clash of titans between Access and Liberty Media, mm -hmm. um, who's been talked about as a potential suitor for UMG shares. They obviously have their stake in, in Live Nation and iHeart and Sirius. And so it, it's, it's kind of a very consolidated uh, sort of industry getting to be like a, you know, PepsiCo or a, you know, Kraft Foods kind of like super consolidated multi-brand scenario. Mm -hmm. um, who knows? But it, I think this is going to play out a lot longer than the rest of this year. Yeah. And, and this was something that was, uh, they were uh, talking about floating in February before everything happened. And that would have been a terrible time, but now they opened up, you know, the stock exchange floor and all of a sudden we're back on a, on a rise. So I think it was a big day on, on the floor today. So one of the things you also mentioned in there was like royalties. And uh, last week we discussed Spotify's countersuit to uh, the indie label Sosa Entertainment, quite covered quite the backstory on it, but just a you know, refresher is that Spotify claims Jake Knox's label, Sosa designed a scheme to generate, artificially generate hundreds of millions of fraudulent streams. Uh, this was in response to a, fi a suit filed by uh, Jake to Spotify for over a billion dollars for failure to pay royalties on the 550 million streams and that company's pro music rights. So we talked in depth about there and there's still a lot of speculation going on. You've spoke to Jake about this and uh, what was his initial reaction? Uh, obviously he's not able to say everything he wants to, I'm sure by virtue of this being a, an active legal matter, but he is, I will say very confident. Uh, and he's, he's very self-assured about the way that this is going to go as if there's some sort of, uh, exposing of the, the, you know, men behind the curtain, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's bound to happen probably in his mind in the nearer term. Um, but I'm sure, as with all you know, true legal battles, this could this could run on longer if it actually doesn't get dismissed outright, or if it if you know if it's not just summary judgment kind of situation. I think it, you know there's a couple of things here, right? There's a conflict of interest between the fact that he owns a label that's running these streams as well as owns the claim, you know, the alleged PRO collecting the performance royalties. There's nothing wrong with having a label and a publisher. I think there's just a different sort of. Uh, conflict involved when you have a suit going out for one party, a suit coming in for another party and a whole lot to juggle around all that. Um, so I, you know, hopefully, you know, he's buttoned up, but frankly, I don't know. 
Um, Spotify is no stranger to the legal system when it comes to royalties. They've been sued. They have sued, and I, you know, they're very str- they're very strong yeah. <laughs> on that front. Um, and and this isn't also not the first time that you know Jake and Pro Music Rights and Sosa Entertainment have been in the news about something like this. Mm-hmm. And so that you know he's sort of a he's got a reputation. He's a little infamous for this. So far, um, yeah. Hopefully, and we don't know if that's the best way to come out of the gate swinging as hard as yeah yeah going going straight for the jugular. So. Uh, yo, Sam, why don't we, uh, you know, see if we can get uh, Jake on the show and, you know, hear his side of the story. I'll talk to him. You know, I think, you know, when you when you type over the internet, uh, whether it's in comments or in a Facebook DM, you know, you have an opportunity to check yourself before you hit that send button. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'd be a, a fun to get into a little uh, repartee in real time about it. Yeah, let's find out. Let's, let's make that happen. So thank you again, Sam. Uh, stay well out there and I'll see you next week. Next up, we have the Duke. The Duke, where are you? Let's uh, let's get you up here, sir. How's everything going? Another blessed day on the earth, Peter. You already right know. On. Beautiful day. Beautiful day. Yes, every day. So, what the topic you 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 mentioned me? You want to talk about escaping the music industry's the music industry's Clone Wars. What exactly do you mean about Clone Wars? I, I'm interested in this. All right, so I was in the car today, and um, my my uh, my wife had um, a Spotify playlist. I guess it was um, Megan The Stallion's Spotify playlist, and um, I knew the first song, "Savage," right? And she's kind of talking some really raunchy things, and so that's coming from the Nicki Minaj energy. But then there was about five or six other girls that came right after that I had never heard of, and they all sounded exactly the same. And the music industry is just that; it's a copycat industry, and I think that's for the detriment of the art of music, right? And so um, kind of like correlating it to food, right? Food, what is the, what is, why do we eat food as humans? It's to nourish our bodies, right? Why do we listen to music? It's for enjoyment. Um, America uh, really loves the cheapest food that's the worst for you, right? And there's companies that will literally supply billions of dollars to make sure that you keep buying this shitty food that is not good for you and it can, continues to kill you, but because LeBron James or they're giving you some type of little trick with their meal, it's a happy meal now, even though it's making you sad because it's not nourishing you. So you can't really do the things that you want to do. I feel the same thing about the music industry, right? And so being that it's a copycat industry, it's not about the music. It's about the widgets. It's about selling something. It doesn't really matter what it is that we're selling. As long as it kind of sounds like something else that already exists, let's sign that artist if they kind of look like they like that somebody already exists. So you have to already sound like somebody and look like somebody that already exists. Your numbers on social media have to be already big. How do you do that, right? And that's on you as the artist to create that. And then pretty much straight out the gate, you already have sold yourself out. So you're not really an artist anymore. You're really a, a mimicker, right? You're mimicking things that already exist. And that is the music industry. Music business is about dollars, right? It's about dollars and cents. Now, at the same time, there's a game that's being played in the music industry that exists now in 2020. This game did not exist in the 1960s, the 1970s. You have places like Motown. You have places like Stax. Musicians actually matter. You actually have to play your instruments. You have to actually have practiced and played gigs where people uh, relied on you to actually play what's on the chart. Somebody actually wrote it for you so that when it hit the record, it didn't really matter what you looked like. It mattered what you sounded like because you want to get played on a radio and nobody's actually going to see you. 
So it mattered what you sounded like and how cool your record sounded so that the people would call into the radio stations, keep tuning into the radio stations to hear your record again, or they're gonna go out there and buy it. And that was the, the point of the music industry was to have people go buy your records. Now it's not about that. By the time they got to the 80s, everybody started looking the same, sounding the same. There was a thousand Poisons, a thousand Motley Crues, a thousand Bon Jovis, and it wasn't until Nirvana came that that kind of changed. And as soon as Nirvana came, you had a thousand bands that looked like Nirvana. And ever since then, it became more about what you look like. Everybody has the same audio programs. We all have Logic. We all have Reason. We all have Pro Tools. You have the same sounds. We all have the same snare drums. If you listen to the hip-hop beats that are playing now, it sounds like a four-year-old made it. And, and you can make that beat in about 30 minutes. So if we're going to rap about sex and we're going to rap over beats that were made in 30 minutes, there's no quality control over the music, right? Now, the game that I'm talking about in the music industry is the game of streams, the game of plays. If you listen to a band like Volpec, who I'd never heard of until Billboard wrote about them, they sold out Madison Square Garden without a manager and without a label. How did they do that? They put out an album of silence on Spotify, and it was called Sleepify, and each song was 30 seconds. So on Spotify, if your song is 20 seconds, somebody plays your song for 20 seconds, you don't get paid. So they put out 10 songs that were all 30 seconds, and they had all their fans play their silent album. We could be listening to their album right now. What makes your silent album better than my silent album? Is your silence better than my silence? There's nothing happening, right? So it's a game. They use that money from the silent album to put, put into their own thing. They did it without a manager, without a label. Chris Brown, coming from the major label system, also the major label understands the same thing. And when he came out with this album in 2017, 2018, it had 45 tracks on it. Why would you put out an album of 45 tracks? The reason why you do that is because you want to have as many plays as you possibly can so that your album goes to the top number one streams. So again, it has nothing to do with the quality of Chris Brown's music, right? It's about the quantity of his music because that's how the charts are going to go. And then when the charts go up, then the label goes, we got the number one artist with the number one album. And guess what? I don't give a shit because the, the music doesn't mean anything to me because I know it's hamburgers and I don't eat McDonald's because I, I know it's not good for me, right? But I care about music and I care about life. So the Clone Wars is the industry. How do you avoid the Clone Wars? You do what Joe Rogan did, right? You, you invest in yourself. And you create your own thing. Then when you create your own thing, all the piranhas come, right? And if you understand what piranhas want, you can feed them a little niblet here. You can feed them a little nib niblet there. But you control your art versus copying everything that came before. Because if you copy everything that came before, when those things change, you're done. And you have no career, right? You only have this thing. Oh, yeah, I remember that girl. She was talking about curved dicks and uh, love sucking this and sucking that. It's like nobody's going to care about that in five years, six years, seven years. So that's the clone war of the music industry. And um, it's more apparent now than ever before because you will, you will not get signed unless you look, sound, smell, have numbers like everybody else. Right on. Thank you, Duke. Yeah, there, there's a lot there, man. It's, and, I, and I love it. Uh, you know, going back to is a couple of things I was noting is like, you know, the silent album, you know, talking about that art. And I, and I always look back to like John Cage's 433, <clears throat> which is just a piece of silent music. Exactly. And it was always up open for interpretation of what it is. But they weren't going for that. They weren't going for the interpretation. They were saying, telling their fans to go to sleep with it and just put it on repeat. And then eventually Spotify took that down. But they just but, using that money. They used that money to make the album that they did sell. And, that, and they sold out Madison Square Garden. I mean, right. that's amazing. I never even heard of them. Well, so it goes back to Twisted Sister. And, and I when I talk to any artist, I say, 
you know, required movie watching, documentary watching is We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. Because you want to talk about a band that is like, I want to rock. The, when they got signed to Atlantic in 83, I think it was, I Want to Rock. That was the big breakthrough MTV smash hit. The documentary ends there. It ends with them getting signed to Atlantic. It's all about what they did in the 70s and all the problems and trials and tribulations and everything they had to overcome. And what they did, because no radio station would play their music, they didn't have anybody, like they, they sold out the Palladium, like full, first band to fully sell out the Palladium without a manager, without a record label, without a publishing, con uh, 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 publishing contract. And one of the things that they would did, and I, and I love this kind of ingenious mentality was they listened to the radio and radio advertising on the radio was, that was, that was the key thing that you could play a song on the radio for a minute as an advertisement and you could just play the music. So if people were listening, so they say, so they created ads that were one minute long and it was just their music playing. And then at the end of it said, come see Twisted Sister live at the Palladium. And so everybody got to hear their music. And that's the kind of real ingenious, uh, you know, innovative kind of creative ways of getting around the system there. And, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, going back to, you know, things that sound the same. And we always see like, it's like every eight years, it's, it's a change in the music sound. We had like, you uh, talk about the eighties and we had like metal and it was, you know, like a million poisons and wingers and all of that. And it's really interesting to notice, like, you know, some of those musicians, the, the people in those metal bands were absolutely amazing musicians that were studio musicians, like doing stuff for a whole bunch of other, for television, for advertising, studio stuff. And they were musicians and they were fantastic musicians and they just went and rocked out. And then you had Nirvana and grunge and alternative, and then it changed into boy bands and pop going into the night, into the 2000s. So it's, it's, I, I hear what you're saying and, you know, it's, but it's, I also think it's kind of like that cyclical. It's like you find that sound and then people latch onto that sound and then you can create your own, what's the next sound and always be trying to figure out what the next sound is and being on the front of the, catching that wave and creating your own curves there. Can I give you one sidebar on Twisted yeah. Sister? Um, the joys of Twisted Sister. Um, South by Southwest, I think it was 2013. I'm wearing a Saigon Kick shirt, right? Saigon yeah, Kick. Yeah, Saigon Kick. All right, Saigon Kick, one of the greatest bands ever, right? They only uh, put out three albums with Atlantic and then some, some albums after that. I'm wearing the Saigon Kick shirt and I'm going to this Thai place, right? And this guy outside, he goes, man, Saigon Kick. I haven't seen somebody wear a Saigon Kick shirt in so long. And in my heart, I'm like, anybody that knows about Saigon Kick is automatically my friend. And I said, man, you know about Saigon Kick? That's amazing. He said, yeah, I signed them. I said, oh, you're Jason Flom. He said, yeah, I'm Jason Flom. And I had no idea who Jason Flom was other than every time I read the Saigon Kick bio, it said Jason Flom. Now, Jason Flom signed Twisted Sister, but he also signed Katy Perry and Britney Spears and Matchbox 20 and Hootie and the Blowfish and Collective mm -hmm. Soul and Stone Devil Pilots and blah, blah, blah. But I couldn't give a shit about any of those people, not that I knew about it, but I just loved that he signed Saigon Kick. And, and he said, he said, I wonder why that band didn't get bigger than they were. Mm -hmm. You know, the answer really lies in the system because the system didn't believe that those guys could be whatever they could be because they didn't have that look or that sound, right? And that is the system. And yeah, man. all right, thank you, Duke. That was awesome. Yeah, and Saigon Kick, uh, uh, one of my favorite songs. 
a month of Sundays, and that sure is what it's felt like for the last few months here. So um, yeah. thanks for that. And also, yeah, check out that documentary, We Are Twisted Fucking Sister, because Jason Flom gets into it. He was almost, he was told if he ever brings up the band's name again, that he's not allowed in the in the Atlantic building. So, you know, talk about a determined person. So thanks for that. Uh, Aisha, let's bring up Aisha. How are you? Good, good. What's going on with you this week? Um, you know, just uh, surviving and doing the thing, enjoying a little bit of sunshine, you know? Right on. Um, yeah, so this week, what I wanted to talk about was sometimes people come up from your past, and it's happening a lot during this period because I feel like everyone's getting a little nostalgic and they're like wanting to contact that ex or like, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be exes, but it could be anyone. But I found that there's a propensity of people just showing up from the past. And sometimes it's a past that you left in the past for the reason, you know? And um, so I was thinking about how to deal with that and how do we handle those things that come up that are from times that we wish we had left behind or, or maybe we, you know, wish we'd acted in a different way or, you know, had someone in our lives for like one month instead of three months and, you know, things like that. Uh, so first of all, I think I, I came, I've come up with a kind of three-pronged method and it's, it starts a with three-pronged identifying. method to, uh, to how to uh, reach to out to the past. past. <laughs> Forgive yourself for the past. There you go. Um, you got to identify it first. Um, identify that, you know, not so fresh feeling that you're having about the past and about this person contacting you. Um, but once you've identified it, and it doesn't necessarily, sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes it's just like you're not, um, you know, having a full on like, oh, it's just like, hmm, just something's like a little unfresh here. Um, so first we identify it. And then the next two prongs are a little bit related. One, what did I learn? And sometimes it can be really hard to go back and say, okay, look at this situation and be like, well, what did I get out of that? What am I never gonna do again? What, uh, <laughs> what little lessons can I put in my book uh, or put on my wall so that I don't repeat that? That's important. But then the third prong sort of related to that is forgiveness. And in part, it's forgiving yourself. How do we do that? And forgiving the person, but a lot of times it's you. A lot of times it's like, how could I have been so dumb to do what I did or, you know, to believe this person or whatever it is? How can we get to that self-forgiveness? And I found for me, um, the way that really helps is if I start to think of myself as this future self that is like 100% where I wanna be. And if I can bring in that future self that has it 100%, I realize that I'm a person that doesn't even care about these things in the past. So how can I get myself into that mode? You know, and, it, and it's a little bit of a meditative thing to just go in there and say, okay, this future me can be, and I love this word, magnanimous, can be that big as to like let all this go and let my forgiveness of myself happen because there's a future me 
that knows that I've got it all together and it's all happening the way I want to. So that's what I've been using on this week. And I thought I'd share it with you people because it might be really helpful. And I know we all have people that mm, we want to kind of forget and times that we want to forget and, you know. But it yeah. could be an ex bit. It could be an ex band member. Or it could be an ex you know, coworker. Mm -hmm. It's not just like the ex boyfriend girlfriend, yeah. but that type of relationship. And it's it's something could that be a manager, can, but not yeah. Sam. Never Sam. <laughs> and it's like kind of work through these things. So you know, I really I really love that that the the three pronged approach for how to identify this, and and I know like looking at this and moving into the like the present and looking at the future saying, uh, you know, Stephanie, uh, we were talking uh, about bringing up, you know, when the issue is uh, bringing up the past, uh, you and I have spoken about the current situation with working together online, virtual relationships, uh, which sometimes leads to project nightmares. So kind of elaborate, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Thanks, Peter. Uh, Aisha, I love the visualization you created because now I want to take that and make it a little more like tactical for the relationships we might be dealing with in this virtual world. And I'm just going to put aside how crazy the times are and really just speak to leadership and cultivating powerful leadership and powerful teamwork and taking on that you are 100% responsible for all of your collaborations and for all of your teamwork. And that was an absolutely excruciating lesson for me to learn. Um, I would rather pay you 10 grand to do nothing than have a hard conversation with you. And I've done that. I've paid people 10 grand to do nothing and avoided the hard conversation. Um, I've watched them not do the work and then sat there silently, gripped by a fear of not saying something. Usually for me, gripped by the fear of being a bitch or sounding like a bitch. But breaking through that is the reason, like the reason why my businesses and my life work, because at the end of the day, all anything is, is the relationships we have. So these are like really little red flags that I've seen cause big problems in virtual relationships right now. Okay. They're so innocuous, but bear with me. How about that? They show up late. They cancel at the last minute. They reschedule at the last minute. They won't turn on their video in a Zoom call, which can usually means they're distracted or they're vague about next steps. And those are also the folks that like avoid setting deadlines and follow-ups in the calendar. So the project doesn't have much momentum. Or my favorite is the person where like there's always a crisis five minutes before the call and they can't show up. Um, so the reason these little red flags cause big problems is that they are like little energetic parasites on your mission on your commitment, on your vision, because you are 100% responsible for your teams and for your life. And to chronically complain about someone else's behavior is actually on you, not on them. So in order to be okay with holding this line, you wanna get clear on what you make it mean about yourself if you're not willing to tolerate it anymore. Will they hate you? Will you develop a nasty reputation? Do you just want to look good? Will it mean you're unkind or inflexible? Like, what does it mean about you if you're not willing to tolerate bad behavior in your partnerships anymore? Unlocking this for yourself is total freedom. And the one thing I see over and over again is that we need permission to have hard conversations sometimes, but big people doing big things have hard conversations. And there is a cost 
to keeping these people around. It means that energetically, you are a no to something greater. You're a no to your dream collaborator because you're keeping the lukewarm one on. And you know, it like took every ounce of courage for me to fire my old publicist who wasted like five, seven grand. And like the moment I finally did it, there was room for the publicist of my dreams to walk through. So in what ways are you more committed to not rocking the boat than to your happiness, your joy, and the success of your visions? And I'd offer you one takeaway from this. Have this hard conversation with one person on your team that you've had chronic complaints about by the end of today. Be a stand for what you've created. And if you say it with love, if you give up being defensive, it'll be such a contribution to that person. We're like conditioned to have hard conversations be terrible but you might not even need to fire them. But either way, you'd be in a whole new world of teamwork and leadership and owning your integrity. So those are my thoughts. I love it. I love it. Oh, your integrity. And that's really what it comes down to uh, is like your own. It's basically like what you value. And if you value yourself and you create this, you know, you look at yourself with integrity, that's going to reflect in how people see you. Well said. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. That was fantastic. I love how everything ties in together. Um, you know, just in like something, as, as I always close out, as like a little recap, something to think about is, you know, in listening to what's going on, it's like, you know, powerful leadership means reflecting, making, and adjusting from the past. Maybe now is the time to look back and take time to make changes in your approach with your current relationship and teams. This applies to everyone in business and your fellow creatives, whether you're bandmates, co-writers, co-producers, or just anybody that's in the team around you. Hold yourself accountable and you will see changes in the world. And that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you find this interesting and helpful, please hit that subscribe button and ring the notification bell to be alerted about new shows. You can also find Music Industry City at, at musicindustrycity.com on your preferred podcast player. And thank you again to our hosts, Sam, Aisha, Stephanie, and the Duke. Have a wonderful day and see you next time. Peace.